Well, turn with me this morning to John chapter 3. Your New Testament scriptures, John chapter 3. Enjoyed some of these selections from John's gospel. I'm trying to look at some of these well-known passages of our Lord. Of course, John 3 is quite well-known. It was even a surprise to me. I've never preached on John 3 before. It seemed like an important passage to touch on uh, at some point. So John chapter 3, and let me read verses 1 through 16. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know And we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give our thanks and pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to your word again as we pray each week, be our teacher. We read here of the Son of Man being lifted up, crucified, but also exalted in his resurrection and ascension, the means by which you draw all people to you. So may the Son of Man then be lifted up today, so to speak, in proclamation, and may our eyes behold him, and may his grace give to each person here uh, the need of their heart and soul. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. At the end of the previous chapter here in John, we read about Jesus and people. We read this statement about Jesus and people. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Here's the idea. As Jesus is revealing his glory through his signs, such as turning the water into wine at the wedding, people are seeing them and being intrigued by him. And John even says that some people are believing in his name. But there is something about their faith 
that is incomplete. For John also tells us that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. And the verb translated entrust, it's the same as the word translated believe. So it's the people believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in them, so to speak. It's a deliberate wordplay meant to give us a heads up that Jesus knows the true state of these people's hearts. And so what follows here in John 3, what we've read today, it's a conversation where Jesus reveals that knowledge. Then he knows Nicodemus's true condition. And Nicodemus is one of those people who is intrigued by Jesus, but he hasn't yet come to realize exactly who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So you might say Nicodemus exemplifies the people described there at the end of John 2. They have some kind of faith in Jesus, but it's not yet adequate. So what needs to happen in order for people to cross the threshold? into a genuine faith relationship with Jesus. Or as J.I. Packer described it when talking about his own conversion, it was like a child looking into a house from the outside. He sees children playing games, and he even knows the rules, but he hasn't gone inside to play the game with them. What does it mean? How does a person cross that entrance to this genuine relationship with Jesus? What characterizes them? Well, Jesus tells us in this chapter with the famous phrase, you must be born again. And we're going to talk throughout this message what that means. Let me just introduce it by saying this very simply. The idea of spiritual rebirth is not something that should have taken Jesus's first hearers by surprise. And we'll hear Jesus tell that to Nicodemus in this conversation. But many times in the Old Testament, God promises to remake, to restore his world and his people in it, especially his people Israel. There is a hope of spiritual restoration, of new life. It's what God promises through the prophets. He says, when I show up to save you, this is going to happen. And as we consider last week, part of God's plan to restore his world involves transforming people into new creations, giving them new birth. And so what Nicodemus needs, needs to realize, that what we all need to embrace as well, is the idea that Jesus is the one through whom God's new creation comes. When will it happen? How will it happen? Through Jesus Christ. Christ. And that means then there are certain things we need to believe about him, who he is, what he's come to do. There are certain things we should believe about ourselves, who we are, and what we need. And we should then entrust ourselves to the one who can give us this new life. So let's try to consider all of that from this passage this morning where we see the new life Jesus gives us through the Spirit. And let's consider that under two headings, a little longer headings, but they're in the bulletin there uh, for your help. First is this, we need new life from the Spirit in order to experience God's reign. We need new life from the Spirit in order to experience God's reign. So let's walk through this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Verse 1 introduces him to us as a Pharisee. 
a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, we read about the Pharisees often in the Gospels. They're usually not friendly to Jesus. But as we'll see in verse 2, Nicodemus is not antagonistic to Jesus. Now, he's not yet a follower of him, but he doesn't come in hostility. And furthermore, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. That's your Jewish supreme court. So a very prominent member of the Jewish community. And according to verse 2, he comes to Jesus at night and begins a conversation with Jesus with this statement. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, I take Nicodemus' statement as polite. He's calling Jesus a rabbi. He's acknowledging his miracles, and he's not attributing them to Satan, as some do. He's recognizing God is with Jesus. This is a great teacher sent from God. But Jesus wants Nicodemus to see more than this. And that's what the conversation will center around. Interestingly, before Jesus even speaks, John already gives us a little clue that Nicodemus needs to see more. He tells us Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And that may seem like an insignificant detail. And and maybe in a different part of the Bible, it, it would be overdoing it to draw attention to that. But John consistently develops a light darkness theme throughout his gospel. And darkness has a negative moral connotation or idea. So John wants us to see Nicodemus as one in the darkness. And one author writes, Out of the darkness of his life and religiosity, Nicodemus came to the light of the world. And what does Jesus then want Nicodemus to see? He tells us in verse 3, Very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, sometimes in John's gospel, he'll condense his narrative and our transitions might seem abrupt, but likely here, Jesus is abrupt on purpose. He is saying to Nicodemus, you know what? That's nice what you just said, but let's get to the point. And the point is you need to be born again. You think you see who I am because you've seen my signs. Let me tell you what you do not yet see. What you don't yet see is that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And again, the kingdom of God, we've often said this, it's God's reign. It's where God manifests his rule. It's just part of that whole Old Testament theme of the coming salvation. And interestingly, the Old Testament doesn't actually use the phrase kingdom of God, but it anticipates God's coming and that God will rule over his world. And that will involve the restoration, the regathering, the salvation of his people and the resurrection of the dead. So this is one big package that God is going to bring one day. He's going to show up and he's going to bring life to his people, life to his creation. And that, by the way, is why, is why the phrase kingdom of God is used synonymously with the concept of eternal life. Those are the same idea in the gospel. So if you want to see the kingdom, or as verse 5 says, if you want to enter the kingdom, and, and that's the same idea, just difference due to style. If you want to participate in the age to come, if you want to have eternal life, you must be born again. 
So what does it mean to be born again? Well, the word again can also be translated as from above. And John probably has both meanings in mind. Double meaning is frequent in John. In order to enter God's kingdom, you have to experience a second birth or a birth from above. Well, Nicodemus doesn't quite follow so far. And so he asks in verse 4, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Nicodemus here is probably just laughing at the absurdity of Jesus' suggestion, at least as far as he understands it. He may not even think that Jesus means it literally, but he's trying to say, whatever you mean, it's just absurd. In other words, he can't grasp any understanding of this phrase that makes sense to him. And so Jesus clarifies in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Now when I was a younger Christian, maybe you heard this as well, I heard this phrase explained as Jesus saying, you have to have a physical birth, water, but in order to be saved, you must also have a spiritual birth, spirit. Everyone experiences a physical birth, but not everyone experiences a spiritual birth. And based on what I studied this week, I think that explanation is common. But I think the weakness of that explanation is that it misses the Old Testament background that is informing Jesus' words. First of all, the ancient world probably wouldn't refer to a physical birth as being born of water. But even more than that, there's a rich Old Testament background causing Jesus to refer to water and spirit together as one thing, the same idea. Again, what is Jesus talking about? The coming of God's kingdom, how you can submit to God's rule, how you can have eternal life, what the prophets promised. They expressed it with several images. Listen to one of those images that Ezekiel describes in chapter 36 of his prophecy. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. There's water. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When God acts to save his people, he will cleanse them from impurity. He will wash them, and he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. He will put his spirit in them. Friends, this is the language of new birth. God will bring his people to life spiritually. He will cleanse them from their sins. And the result will be they are new creations who obey his laws. And by the way, it's no surprise. What's Ezekiel's next vision in Ezekiel 37? The valley of the dry bones, where God breathes new life into dead bodies. He brings them to life or to birth again. And that is the background informing Jesus' statement. That's why he tells Nicodemus in verse 7, You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you should know this. You should know that the coming of God's reign 
involves a spiritual transformation of God's people. One author writes, The Jewish world knew the importance of being born into Abraham's family. Jesus is claiming that a new kind of birth is now both necessary and by the Spirit possible. That's what Nicodemus needs. That's what we all need. Now, how that birth comes about, how we experience it, that will be the point of the second idea. Before we consider that, let's look at this language Jesus uses in verses 6 and 8. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now that first phrase is easy to understand. Humans produce humans, but God the spirit produces spiritual life. Humans are weak and mortal. But those whom God brings to life, they live forever. Verse 8 is a little trickier with its statement about the wind and the spirit. But here's what I think Jesus is saying. The wind, at least in the minds of Jesus' original audience, the wind has its origin in God. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it is going. You just know it's of God. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. They are born from God. They're not born by human means. They're born by God's Spirit. Wind comes from God. Spiritually alive people come from God. And John describes this in the opening of his gospel where he writes, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So before we get to the second idea, how we experience it, let me ask, have you been born again? Because every one of us needs God the Spirit to make us new creatures. We cannot trust in our goodness. We cannot trust in our accomplishments to get us into God's kingdom. We need the cleansing, life-giving work of God the Spirit. And you may say, okay, well, I I don't know when I was born again. I, I don't remember the exact moment. That's okay. That's not where the Bible puts the emphasis. The question is, are you alive? That's what I want to know. Do you see signs of life from God the Spirit? And if you do, that's the evidence. That's the assurance of being born again. You don't have to probe back into your childhood and the earliest memories of your life to remember that moment where maybe you prayed or decided or thought something or felt something. Are you alive? Do you see God at work in you to make you more of his child? Do you see a family resemblance And I'm not asking if it's perfect. I'm not asking if you say no to sin every time you're tempted. I just want to, do you see the life, the evidence of the Spirit? That's what matters more than anything else. And one author writes, where there are signs of life, it's more important to feed and nurture it than to spend much time going over and over what happened at the moment of birth. Just feed and nurture the spiritual life. Don't try to figure out 
when it happened. The same author gives the illustration. He says, I don't frame my birth certificate and hang it in my house so you know I'm alive when you come over. You know I'm alive because I'm standing in front of you. And that is what we do spiritually. We look for signs of life. And we all need new life from the Spirit in order to experience God's reign. So how do you get that new life? That's the second idea. Jesus provides and invites us into this transformative new life. Jesus provides and invites us into this new life. And now Nicodemus essentially repeats his main question in verse 9. How can this be? I mean, for years Nicodemus has been teaching people how to live under God's covenant. And now all of a sudden he's facing a condition for covenant renewal he's never faced before. And Jesus essentially gives them the same answer in verse 10. You are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? You're a, you're a distinguished teacher in Israel. You should be able to grasp these truths from the Old Testament and how they are coming true in Jesus. But Nicodemus doesn't yet understand. And so let's look at the rest of the conversation where Jesus continues to instruct him. Now, the first few verses of the last section, they're a wind-up to the main idea. Has anyone ever told you a story or a joke? It had a really long wind-up before the payoff. This is kind of like this. The big idea is at the end, but Jesus is going to build up to it. So let's follow him. Verse 11 says, Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. So here Jesus refers to Israel's inability to grasp the significance so far of who Jesus is and what he is teaching. And Nicodemus is a representative of this. You haven't yet grasped what I'm trying to say. So Jesus continues in verse 12. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things. And it may seem odd to refer to the new birth as an earthly thing, but Jesus is probably using earthly and heavenly as synonyms for elementary and advanced. Nicodemus, I've I've spoken to you of the basics. You're stumbling over the elementary points. How do you even enter the kingdom? You're stumbling over the idea of being born again. If you can't grasp that, what is the point of going on to explain even more details of life in the kingdom? In other words, we've got to get the basics down first. Now, this main point, then, that Jesus is driving towards begins to emerge in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, I think the NLT is clearer with this verse. It reads, No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Here's the point. Jesus has emphasized to Nicodemus the necessity of the new birth. And now Jesus wants to focus Nicodemus' attention on who can provide that birth. Who can give you new birth from above? Who can give you new birth by the Spirit? Only the one who has come down from heaven. No mere human can claim that role. No one's ever gone up there, learned, and come back. But I, Jesus says, I have come down. I 
can fulfill that role. Jesus can give you new birth. He came down from heaven, and he will be the one through whom God's presence and life are mediated. So he wants Nicodemus to realize, you need to be born again, and I'm the one who can give it to you. And so how? Verses 14 and 15 tell us, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus refers here to a story in Numbers 21, when the people of Israel complained, and God sent venomous serpents among them. They were bitten, and they cried out to the Lord for mercy. And so God, in mercy and in love, told Moses, fashion a bronze snake, lift it up on a pole, and everyone who looks at it will live. Jesus is saying, that's what I'm going to do. I will soon be lifted up just like that snake. And his lifting up refers, of course, to his coming death on the cross. He'll be lifted up on a cross. But as John also tells us later in his gospel, his lifting up is connected to his glorification. His lifting up is how he draws all people to himself. So it's the idea of I'll be lifted up on the cross and I'll die. But I'll also be raised from the dead and exalted into heaven. I'll be lifted all the way up. And that is how God will bring new life to his people through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so our last question for today is, okay, how does Jesus expect Nicodemus to respond to this information? After all, if the new birth is something God does to you, God does it to you by the Spirit, why tell Nicodemus you need to be born again? This is where we put all the ideas of the message together. Put both ideas and we'll get our answer. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then says, I'm the one through whom new life comes. So it's an invitation. Telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's inviting Nicodemus, embrace the one through whom new life comes. New life comes through Jesus, the one who came down from heaven and has been lifted up on the cross to destroy the power of sin, to provide the cleansing and spiritual renewal we all need. And that's driven home by that last verse we read today, the well-known John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves his creation. He plans to rescue his people from sin. And so he sends the son to provide their spiritual life and invites them to believe in him in order to have eternal life. So the one who believes in the son, who trusts in him for eternal life, will not perish, but will see and enter the kingdom will have eternal life because they've been brought to life by the Spirit. And so again, I ask in closing, have you been born again? Do you trust Christ alone for the well-being of your soul? 
Is Christ at work in your life to produce spiritual life and fruit? We can move beyond that and try to think about how Christians could live out this new life. What might that spiritual life and fruit look like? I'll just suggest these here at the end. Specifically, if you've been born again, if you have this life by trusting Jesus alone, then as a Christian, you should move towards those in the world with love as God did in Jesus. God so loved the world, so he sent his son. So those who participate in this new creation, likewise, should move towards those in need with love. And I would encourage our church to invest time and energy in activities that further that. Beyond that, Christians should be sacrificial. We should give of ourselves. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So those who have new life, they give of themselves for the betterment of others. That is what Jesus did. And everything that we do, in whatever place God calls you, in whatever opportunities he gives you, is driven by love. Why? Because God is love and so loved the world. So let's thank God for this gift of the new birth and pray for him to keep creating this life in us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross because you loved us that he might pay for our sins, that he might be exalted and draw the nations to himself, that we might have eternal life in him. Father, I pray for our congregation. I pray for those who are assembled this morning, that everyone has experienced the new birth. And I pray if any haven't, for whatever reason, never heard this good news or, or trusting in something else, Lord, open their eyes to see this gracious gift you give. I pray that they would experience new birth. Father, I pray for us as a congregation. I pray for the people who make up this church, that we would continually experience the transforming work of the Spirit. Lord, forgive us for when we sow to the flesh. Lord, help us to sow to the Spirit and to continually know the transformative work of God in our lives. Spirit of God, lead us as a congregation. Lead each individual in in their daily activities, whatever they find themselves doing. Lead us as a congregation into living out this life you've given us. I pray we'd see growth and development in the spirit. And Father, particularly, fill us with love. Make us sacrificial. Make us humble and dependent on the spirit to give this new life. And thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing then in closing, Amazing Grace, and 460, Amazing Grace. We'll sing verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. So hymn 460, verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. Stand with me.